Lord, we thank You for the new covenant, for the covenant of grace that has been offered to all who will come and receive of Your goodness and Your forgiveness, who will put their trust in You alone for the salvation that You have offered. God, this morning I pray that You would open the eyes of our heart. Let us see as You see and hear as You hear. Help us to receive from You. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. As Peter speaks here, as we continue in our series on apologetics, the making of the New Testament, the credibility and viability of the New Testament. And, you know, it, it was interesting this week, I actually received an email from someone in Nigeria who um, is thankfully, as long as, as long as I send them all my information, they're going to donate $5 million to our church. I, I'm just so excited about this. Uh, so excited about the money that they're about to send us, and that's virtually going to pay off our buildings. And I mean, it's just trend. And not only that, the same week, can you believe it? Um, Bill Gates, uh, they, he sent out a deal with Microsoft, and for every person I forward this email to, I'm going to get $50. I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, how wonderful this is. And just I, it's my lucky week. And I bet you, some of you are thinking, you're not really serious. I mean, does he realize those are hoax? Does he realize those are scams? Yes, I do. Yes, I do realize that. Some people don't, apparently, because they kind of recycle themselves, and all of a sudden I'll get them again, and I'll refer them to a website that shows the reality of that situation. And I just was thinking, I got one a few weeks ago, I was thinking, you think that they're really sending money out at this point in the economy to forward emails? But anyway, I tried to be nice on my response back to it, but nevertheless... It's funny only from the sense that sometimes people think that's about all we have for Scripture. I just hope that this is true. I mean, that's what happens. People who fall for that, they think, oh boy, I just want this to be true. I mean, reason says it's not true. Logic says it's not true. Reality says it's not true. Why in somebody in Nigeria sending money to someone in the United States that they don't know $5 million? Think about that for a moment. Um, why is Bill Gates encouraging you to forward emails out? I mean, if you think about all these kind of things, we, we realize for just a moment it's not true. We just want them to be true. And sometimes people look at the Scriptures like that. But can I tell you, it's more, there's more validity, there's more veracity to the truth of Scriptures than simply us wanting them to be true. We're going to look specifically at the New Testament this morning. And I think that I can show you beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is true, that it is authentic. As we look at this passage, we see Peter preaching here and giving the Word of God in Acts chapter 2 and sharing the first sermon that's given after Jesus has ascended, after He's gone back to heaven. Here is Peter speaking, men of Israel... In Acts 2.22, listen to me, Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. You know, you have witnessed the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus did and that He proclaimed. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold on to him. As David said, hundreds of years before Christ has come, he said, I saw the Lord before me because he was at my right hand. The right hand is the hand of protection. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The Holy One is a messianic title. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with your joy and your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today, but he was a prophet, and you, God, had promised him on an oath that he would place one on his, his descendants on his throne. Seeing that was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life. We are witnesses of that fact. And we know the Bible tells us that over 500 witnessed Christ after the resurrection. Exalted at the right hand of God, he has received from the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit has poured out what you see now and hear. Turn with me to Second Peter. Second Peter, if you would, toward the end of the New Testament. Second Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1, toward the end of your Bible. Right before 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We ourselves, in verse 18, we ourselves have heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. Peter's speaking here. He's speaking of the way God authentic, uh, basically gave authentic, the word I'm looking for, somebody say it. Authenticity. It's a big word. I'm from Louisiana. Thank you very much. And we have a word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day's dawn and morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to look in just a moment here uh, at good reason to believe in the historicity of Christ, that it's just historical evidence. If you can believe any historical document uh, that's past 500 years, then you almost have to believe the Scripture because we have far more documentation and far more proof of the Bible and its history than we do of any other work of antiquity. So as we look at this, I think that's just a given fact, even by most secular and non-Christian scholars. The question we must ask is it inspired? God breathed. In other words, does it have the power and does it have the very Spirit of God in it? Is it infallible? The inspired Word of God, can it transform lives? Here's a short definition or a simple definition that God supernaturally worked through common men to produce sacred writings by the power of His Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God came upon men and enabled them to write the Word of God as He saw fit in an infallible manner. That's what inerrancy, or excuse me, that's what inspiration is. Now, let's look at the history for just a moment, though. If you have 
your bulletin, look inside your bulletin, and I have some documents there. One of these is uh, one of the documents that Dr. Dennison a couple of weeks showed us, if you would. Comparison of the New Testament with other ancient works. Comparison of the New Testament with other ancient works. And you see all the ancient works that are listed there. You see the dates that uh, they were written, the earliest copies that we have, the gap of time, and then the number of copies that it still exists today. And virtually no one would say, Plato didn't exist and he didn't make these claims. No one would say that of Aristotle. Uh, no one would say that of Julius Caesar, of Tactus, or Pliny the Younger, or Suetonius. And you see the number of works that we have. But then skip down to the bottom and you see the apostles and their companions, the Greek New Testament manuscripts. You see the dates that it was written. And you see how soon that we have the earliest copies. You see how close they are. You see that the gaps only anywhere from 30 to 100 years. Most of them are 30 to 75 or 80 years. Almost the majority of the documents that we have. And then you see the number of copies. You know how many copies we have? 5,600. 5,600. Now compare that with any of the other documents. If you add all those together, you only come up with 932. But with this one, we see that we have 5,600. And then non-Greek New Testament manuscripts, we have 19,200 for a total really of over 25,000 copies of manuscripts of the New Testament. If you're going to go upon the criteria that historians use for valid history, the Bible has more proof. The Bible has more uh, in existence of manuscripts. It has more to show and more to give than any other book of history uh, that's even close. It's not even close. Twenty Over 25,000 different copies of the manuscripts written in a shorter time period, or excuse me, in a closer time period to their original dates. Uh, also, turn over that page, and let's look at um, some things about archaeology. Let's look at one more. And let's just look at the top one for now. And if you look at the top one, the New Testament archaeology, uh, you, see, uh, you see the name, date, archaeological evidence. The first one is Ossuaries, ossuaries. Now, what are ossuaries? Ossuaries are actually basically little stone boxes that were used to take uh, during the time of Christ and right, particularly right after Christ. Uh, many people would go, and it was common in that culture to go and gather the bones one year after they had been buried. So the bodies decayed. They'd go get the bones, and then they'd put them in an ossuary. It was basically a it would look to us today like a cement box, and they would put those bones in there, and then they would mark them. You know, when Dan Brown came out with the Da Vinci Code, one of the big things that he came out with, well, nobody, uh, nobody in the first and second century ever thought Jesus was God. No one ever made that claim. But now we have found ossuaries that date back to 40 to 50 A.D., and it recognizes that Jesus view on cross, that Jesus died upon the cross and that He was viewed as God by some because it's literally written on some of the ossuaries. The Megiddo church between the 3rd and the 4th century. Again, Dan Brown and others have said, look, no one really thought that Jesus was God at that point. Well, they've discovered a church that had uh, been torn down and had been decimated 
And they found in it, though, still the remains of a table through their archaeological finds. And it had this inscription on it. It was a table that was offered to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. We see that there's an individual at this point who certainly looked at Jesus as God. And it was considered by many earlier followers to be God. So that's not a claim uh, of validity. We see the Johannine crucifixion in the next one. The Johannine crucifixion. This was an individual they, they discovered that they recognized had been crucified uh, really very shortly after the time of Christ. And they were strikingly similar in the crucifixion of Christ. Some, uh, some historians, historians were saying, well, we don't really believe that's how crucifixions were done before this archaeological find. But what they found out is the Johannine cru- uh, crucifixion that this individual had nails driven through his arms, through his feet, and then his legs were broken. What's interesting about that is in Psalms 22, it was prophesied, even though Jesus would be crucified, his legs would not be broken, and they weren't. That was typical and standard at that time. But Jesus' legs were not broken because he was already dead when they got to him, if you'll remember. So they pierced his side. And then uh, for years, scholars said, you know what? Some of these things in the Bible are just made up, like this whole pool of Bethesda. And we've never seen any documentation. We've never seen anything that gives credibility to this. And lo and behold, in 1888 and then in 2004, what do we find? They find archaeological evidence and writings of what? The Pool of Bethesda. matter of fact, they can go and show you where it is now. And the Pool of Siloam. Then all the coinage that's used in Scripture. And these are just a few. The coins in Scripture can all be verified. That's Archaeology is not an opponent of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it is a proponent. We are not found to this day any archaeological evidence that would prove to disclaim the truth of the Scripture. So as we look at that, let's look for just a moment uh, at a couple other things at the making of the New Testament. Uh, When we use some of the Bible terms, I just want to clarify this because semantically sometimes we get confused by what some of these terms are. But Bible terms in, in this sense, when we hear the word Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the ones that the Jew, all Jews pretty much say are sacred writing. Some only appeal to the Torah, which means law. Uh, that's what we're speaking of. When Paul uses the term scriptures or writings, he is making reference to what we know as the Bible. The papyrus, the reeds of which uh, much of the Bible was written on in the early day. The parchment, the animal skins of which uh, we still have in existence today. Uh, many parchments that have scriptures on them and some entire books uh, of the Bible. The scrolls that were used, and then the manuscripts. The manuscripts simply are the handwritten copies of the Bible. And uh, it's it's amazing how many we have and how many copies were made and the incredible accuracy of each of these. The codex, uh, which was skin or paper that was stretched and written and stitched upon. And then the three primary languages of which the Scripture was written. And the Old Testament, primarily Hebrew, the New Testament, it was primarily written in Greek. And then we have see Aramaic, of which uh, the common man spoke in. And also Koine Greek, or common Greek, was used as opposed to uh, more classical Greek. Uh, there is a little bit of classical Greek in there, or ancient Greek, but most of it is Koine Greek. What's remarkable about that is Christianity was a religion of the common man. In other words, the common man could read and understand the language of which the Holy Scriptures were being written in. 
so as we move on there, we see the process that occurred. How did we get our New Testament? How did we get the books that we have right now? Well, if you go back to early extra-biblical documents, uh, we see that officials approved by the formal decision of the church the books that we have right now. They were accepted by the earliest churches as doctrine. They were used by the early church in public worship. They were accepted throughout the whole church and not just a few congregations, and they were widely read. That was the process to make sure that the validity of the Scriptures stand firm. That's why when you see some of these extra-biblical books that come up, they didn't meet those criteria. They were not entered into the canon as we know it today. What about the purpose? What was the purpose uh, of the New Testament? Why did we need a New Testament? Well, because the New Covenant. As we had a shared a time of communion today, we experienced the New Covenant. The New Covenant is one of grace that's provided to us by Christ and His death and His resurrection. So the New Covenant required a New Testament. Jesus' words needed to be preserved. The church needed eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ Himself. The church needed to explain and defend the Gospel as Peter was doing here in the book of Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Peter and as we see Paul doing throughout his letters. The church needed doctrinal standards and practical guidelines. Disciples needed training and the world needed the story of Jesus. So what proof do we have? Well, this is the proof we have. Of course, the non-Christian proof we have is uh, Dr. Dennison talked about a couple weeks ago as Tactus and Pliny and Suetonius. Some of those are even listed on the sheet that you have. But also the early Christian writers who are not mentioned in Scripture, uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, these all were just in a few years uh, after the death of Christ. And then the archaeological evidence. Let's look at one more uh, at the bottom of that page that you just looked at a while ago. Let's look at the archaeology, uh, prophecy and archaeology there at the bottom of the page. The first one we see, and, uh, and again, if we, you go back and read historians and scholars, uh, many of them would say that they would discredit the Old Testament because the city of Nineveh was never found. We never see any recording of it. But then, of course, uh, in the 1800s, it was discovered. And not only was it discovered, this is interesting. Uh, they have discovered the Babylonian chronicle records and that list the fall of Nineveh uh, to the Babylonians. And what's interesting, if you go to Nahum chapter 2, and we don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to go back and read it. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 3, Nahum predicts, Nahum's an Old Testament prophet, he predicts this, that uh, the enemy will come with red shields and red clothing, scarlet clothing. Guess what the Babylonian Chronicles, again, this is a completely pagan source, is it gives a history of the records. Guess what they showed up with? Their shields were red and their uniforms were red. Interesting, the Bible predicts this and predicts the, the fall of Nineveh through the prophet Nahum. Also, the fall of Babylon through Cyrus is also predicted in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And it specifically says that Cyrus will be the one that will deliver the children of Israel, will deliver the Israelites. And not only are they delivered, it also says that he will help restore the temple, and that's exactly what he does. He helps restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Remarkable. Then Jesus, if you'll remember, in Matthew chapter 24, when the Pharisees are talking to him, he says, look, 
Look over here, and he's in the temple area. There will not be a stone left that's unturned. And sure enough, what happens? Titus comes in in 70 A.D., and he raises the temple. Matter of fact, he destroys Jerusalem, and there's not literally one stone left on top of another in the temple. Historically, it's fulfilled. You want more? How about prophecies Jesus made Himself that we know to be already true? And these are before they came true. First of all, Jesus prophesied in John chapter 1, His ascension, that He would be forsaken by the disciples in Matthew 26. He prophesied His betrayal in Matthew 17. He prophesied the church that would come in Matthew 16. He prophesied His death in Matthew 26. He prophesied His death and resurrection in John chapter 2. He prophesied the death of Peter in John chapter 13, the destruction of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, the end times in Matthew 24, the future resurrection in John chapter 5, future rewards in Matthew chapter 19, the meeting of His disciples in Galilee after His resurrection in Matthew 26, Pentecost, of which we read in Acts chapter 2, He prophesied in John chapter 7. Peter's denial in Luke chapter 22. His resurrection in Matthew chapter 12. His return in John chapter 14. His second coming in Matthew chapter 16. The setting aside of Israel in Matthew 21. His sufferings in Matthew chapter 17. And His transfiguration in Matthew 16. Jesus, God in the flesh. That not enough? What about the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? Let me begin here and go all the way back. And we can look and we can see, beginning with the descendant of Isaac, that he would be a descendant of Jacob and not Esau. These are all prophecies given us in the Bible that Jesus fulfilled. That He would be a descendant of Judah, done. That He would be a descendant of the family of Jesse. That He would be of the house of David. That He would be born in a small city called Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, Micah goes as far as to say not just Bethlehem, because there were two Bethlehems in this time, but Bethlehem Ephratah, the specific cities given. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be a priest out of the order of Melchizedek. That he would, the scepter would not pass from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah comes. And that was true. It didn't come until after Jesus was born. He will come... He will come while the temple of Jerusalem is still standing. He will perform many miracles. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will speak in parables. The Gentiles will believe in Him while His own people, the Jews, will reject Him. These are each Old Testament prophecies. A messenger will come preparing the way for Him. That was John the Baptist. That He will enter Jerusalem riding a donkey as found in Zechariah 9. He will be betrayed. More specifically, he would be betrayed by a friend. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal money would be cast upon the floor. More specifically, it would be cast upon the floor of the temple. He would not open his mouth to defend himself as he did exactly that before Pilate. He would be beaten and spat upon. He would be numbered with the transgressor. He would be pierced. His hands and his feet would be would be pierced. His bones would not be broken, as we spoke of early, earlier. They will divide His clothing and class lot, lots for them. He will be given vinegar and gall to drink. He will say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He will be buried with the rich. His body will not decay. He will be resurrected from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. He will be seated at the right hand of God. And He will be known as the Son of God. 
Old Testament prophecies of which Jesus filled. You see the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see the prophecies that Jesus has given. You see the archaeological evidence. You see the historical evidence. Hey friend, we don't have to hope it's true. We can know that the Bible is true. You know, Voltaire said in the 17th century, he said this. He said, you know what? Uh, probably in my lifetime, certainly within a hundred years after I die, the Bible will become extinct and Christianity will be wiped off the face of the earth. As you know, as we've shared before, 50 years after the death of Voltaire, the Geneva Bible printing press bought his house and started putting Bibles in mass production from his house. Hey, you can say what you want, but that does not change the validity and the historicity of the Scripture. The question is, will you take God at His Word and His sovereign ability to transmit His Word and the inspiration that it can change your life, that He is the Son of God, He is who He claims to be, as Scripture shows us. Hey, John Wycliffe, many of you have heard of him, he was the first to copy the Bible into English, even though it was against the law. And then one of his pupils, so to speak, uh, John Huss, who was very influenced by him, began to make more copies of the Bible into English. And it was literally outlawed by penalty of death. Huss continued to do that, and he continued to speak out against some of the atrocities of the church at that day, in that day. And they finally said, we've had enough. If you don't quit, we're going to burn you at the stake. They brought him to trial, found him guilty. And then they took wood, and for kindling, they took the manuscripts of John Wycliffe, those translations of the Bible from Latin into English, and they used those as kindling. And John Huss was burned alive. But you know what he said as he was dying? He was singing a hymn, and then these were his last words they have recorded. He goes, You can burn me if you will, but God will raise up a man within a hundred years whom you shall not be able to stamp out his voice. One hundred years later, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. Hey, men and women have died for the truth of Scripture and their ability to have it. It is an atrocity if we don't take the Word of God and implement it into our life and allow it to inspire and transform us. What about you today? Have you believed? Have you received? Have you accepted? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the heroes of the faith. Thank You, God, for the unbelievable, just unrealistic, almost, Father, just unheard of amount of, Lord, just authenticity that You've given to show us the truth of the Scripture. To show us that is real and valid and accurate. I pray this morning for those who do not know You, that they would be drawn to know You. Lord, I pray that those who know You would have their hearts burn within them to know You through Your Word. And I pray, Father, that You would use that Word to transform our lives into Your image. There's one that needs to come today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit. And we give you the praise and the glory. Amen.